Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to everybody joining us online. Really excited about all the things we have going on in our community. So yesterday made a really, really big day. Uh, yesterday was the completion of my son's T-ball league in which we finished undefeated. Yes. They don't keep score in T-ball, so it's impossible to lose. Still the same, we were undefeated. And I also feel like I need to, we're family, I gotta be honest, I need to announce my hypocrisy. I have been a person who has said on multiple occasions that I was against participation trophies. That was until my son got a participation trophy. And I'm, it's shining, maybe it's the way the light hit it, or oh, I don't know, man, but that thing is beautiful. We are extremely uh, excited. Uh, this year, I got a chance to be uh, one of the assistant coaches for my son's T-ball league, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, my main reason and main impetus for being a coach was because uh, the first day, all these kids were basically just throwing sand in their, in their hair, sand was getting in their eyes, and my son was the ringleader. So I became a coach to stop him from throwing sand everywhere, and we ended up having a good time. Uh, one of the things that I didn't anticipate happening was that uh, over the year, I actually became friends with uh, the baseball coaches with me. And man, we had a good year trying to teach the kids the, fun the fundamentals and the foundations uh, of baseball. And we had a coaches cookout because we deserved it. And I was talking to one of the coaches, shout out to my man Aiden, you might be watching right now. And whenever somebody finds out that I'm a pastor, it's always interesting because like in this setting, most people know kind of what I do, right? But when you're not with people who are not in church every single Sunday, Sometimes there's just a lot of questions about like, well, what do you do? And we were hanging out, eating some ribs, and my boy found out that I was a pastor, and he was like, oh, okay, so like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a pastor. And he was like, oh, I, I know that, I know that, but what do you actually do? Like, I know you do this on Sunday mornings. You kind of write some notes down, and you stand up in front of people, and you talk. But beside that, what do you do? And anybody who's a pastor's kid, unfortunately, you know how many expectations have been placed on pastors and how many hours people work. And uh, I used to practice law for a number of years, and I, I can say with full integrity that I work a whole lot more now than I did when I was practicing law. It really truly is a never-ending uh, thing. Uh, we've been working on some stuff here that I'm incredibly excited to announce to our members tomorrow night on our town hall. Make sure y'all registered for that if you're a member. Um, and really, we're not just thinking about where Renaissance is today or next week. We think about where we are in a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. What is the legacy that we will leave? How will we truly impact this neighborhood? And it takes a whole lot of work to steer ourselves in that direction. We've also had a lot of moves to make in the short term to move us from online to here and from here back to PS76 next week. So really excited about that. But uh, one of the aspects of my job that I get a chance to do a lot is I get the, the privilege to be invited into people's best moments. So weddings, childbirths, uh, I'm not at the childbirth, that would be very weird. But weddings, I'm there, and I'm there after the child is born. Uh, I barely made it through my, my wife's two deliveries. Nobody wants to invite me to theirs, trust me. Uh, but I also get invited into the worst moments. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest challenges and gifts of, of my job that I get the, the privilege to be invited into life's most difficult moments. Uh, I get the call after the suicides, um, after the diagnosis, after the, the marriage is dis dissolving, 
And um, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that whenever anybody invites you into that situation, they're never looking for you to fix it. Right? One of the things that I think people misunderstand so much about being with other people who are hurting is we just kind of feel this like impetus, like I have to say something that's going to make them feel better. And I don't know where it came from, but I know where it needs to go. With physical pain, it's interesting. Like nobody would walk up to somebody who just broke their leg and offer them the cliche. Like with physical pain, we understand that it takes time for things to heal, that things just don't get better immediately. People just don't snap out of a broken leg. But with emotional anguish and real, and real emotional pain and grief and sadness and deep turmoil, it's almost as if since people can't see the source of it, we think they can snap out of it. Now, unfortunately, I've learned that the, the hard way that in my worst moments, I've had people throw the worst and dumbest cliches at me, and it made me really honestly feel like fighting them. Uh, in my most painful moments, people would just say, yeah, man, you know what you got to do? You got to let go and let God. I say, yeah, man, that's deep. That's deep. It's good, man. That's good. That's good. So, hey, what are you doing for the rest of today? Are you leaving? And I would hopefully say whatever I can say to end that conversation as quickly as possible. But there was one friend who really was extremely helpful with me and for me, and he never said anything that was profound. He never said anything that was good or anything that changed the way I understood God or the way I saw a situation. Quite literally, all he did was take me, with, uh, take me to watch some Knicks games, watch the Knicks lose and eat chicken wings, two of my favorite pastimes to do. And it was just in his simple presence that, man, so much healing happened. So take this as some free advice. If you're ever fortunate enough to be invited into life's most difficult moments with someone, just sit there. Follow their pace. Now, there have also been times where I've been invited into someone's darkest moments, most painful moments, and the conversations end up helping me. Now, that sounds really weird, and I don't know if you've ever met someone who's, I mean, their life is a picture of your literal hell. And yet, in the midst of all of that, they have just this unshakable faith I've been on these calls where I'm like, wait, wait, let me make sure I'm talking to the right person. Is, Steve, is this Steve? Is, is this actually going on in your life right now? And they're like, yes, but I'm just trusting God. And they don't just say that in a cliche way, but they actually have this profound, defiant faith. They're trusting that God is for them, despite the trial that they find themselves in in the current moment. They're trusting that God is with them presently, tangibly in that moment, and they have this bold assurance that God can do anything, that even though they don't see how God can do anything with the scraps of their life, that God, the master chef, can take all of the anguish and everything in their life, and he can make something absolutely beautiful with it. It is a simple yet profound trust. Now, when the Bible talks about faith, it doesn't talk about your faith in any huge ways, but rather your faith in a very simple way, almost like a, a child and how they would see the world. It's like a, a childlike faith. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, and if you have your phones or your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to Luke 18 and 15. I'll be reading from the CSB, uh, and for those of you who are watching online, it'll be on your screen. 
So Jesus is teaching on faith, and it says, People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, Let the little children come to me, and don't stop them. Here's his rationale. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. Now, I don't think Jesus is giving us a a litmus test, something that you need to do to earn the kingdom of heaven. That's not the way Jesus works. However, the way he does work is that Jesus is trying to nurture in his disciples, he's trying to nurture in you, he's trying to nurture in me, a humble, simple dependence on God. Now, in the text, in the first verse, in verse 15, it says that the people were bringing infants to Jesus. And for the rest of today, I really want us to be thinking about what it looks like to have a childlike faith but not a child like uh, a 10-year-old, because those children can be complex. (laughs) But like an infant. I don't know if you've ever been around a a nine-month-old or a 10-month-old or a three-month-old. The simple and humble, pure dependence that they have. This is the goal of faith that Jesus says. Now, I don't know who coined the term or the phrase, but I've once heard that the goal in life that the goal of your life, the goal of your journey with Jesus is to go from dependence to independence back to a a willful and deliberate dependence on God. So from dependence on your parents, on the environment of your guardians, of schools, to independence back to a chosen and deliberate dependence on God. Now here's what infants believe about their parents wholeheartedly in every fiber in their body, they believe that their parents are for them. They believe that their parents are 100% for them. It can be an earthquake outside and they will look at their parents like their parents are for them. Now my, my youngest son is three years old now and he still very firmly believes this. Uh, Sunday mornings around my house are always a time of the, worst, the most work for me. Uh, my wife is very great with our children to help me to make sure I'm like, clear when it's my turn to speak, to really be free to pray and to have just freedom to work over my notes and everything like that. And my six-year-old kind of gets it now, uh, and he knows, kind of leave daddy alone in the morning. But there's one person in our household who does not care. This morning, my three-year-old was just banging on the door like, I want daddy, I want daddy. And my wife was trying to say, no, daddy's doing some work. And he was like, I want daddy, I want daddy. Uh, Here's what he believed correctly that he was more important than anything else in my world. He believed, despite closed doors, locked doors, that I'm for him. That if I just stand here and bang, he's going to open it. It's really interesting, when Jesus taught about prayer in Luke 18, earlier in this chapter, Jesus talks about just this bold banging and knocking, insisting, and not going anywhere until the Father answers. There's something about children that are meant to instruct us on how our faith is supposed to be lived. They also believe, not just that you're for them, but they believe that when you are with them, everything is better. That it doesn't matter what just happened, if they cut their hand, bruise their knee, your simple presence enhances the situation. I wonder what it would look like if Christians, if people who uh, have placed their faith in Christ, believed that simply the presence of God in your life, not the alleviation of anything that's going on around it, made life tolerable tolerable and, and better. And kids also have this audacious belief that you can do anything. 
Like, you can lie to a young kid and say anything. You can be like, yo, I'm going to turn my hand into a brick. And you can watch their eyes just light up with wonder and amazement in full anticipation that you are about to turn your hand into a brick. Now, there's a piece of us that certainly recoils at the naivete of children, and we would never want to be like that. But there is something about their belief that their parents can do anything, that anything is possible. As I was thinking and praying this morning, I thought about my own life and so many conversations, how jaded we've become, how we've lost the wonder, how we've lost the belief that God can do stuff in our lives, how we've stopped praying because it doesn't even matter anymore. We have lost this childlike awe and faith and wonder that God can do anything, that God can take our scraps and feed 5,000, that God can take a broken life and turn it into a testimony, that God can do anything with your life. And God is not limited by your discipline. God is not limited by your ability. This is the whole gospel message. To develop this childlike faith, it is something inside of us that will be believing that God is for us, that God is with us, and that God can do anything. Now, the problem with us, I've mentioned, the problem with me for sure is certainly so many unmet expectations and challenges in life, but I actually think even deeper than that and more important than us being jaded by life is there's a lot of things that we need to unlearn. So the path of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. I used to think that if I read another book or read some more scripture or prayed more or did something like that, then I'm going to grow into a better disciple of Jesus. That if I read this book, go to this conference, then if I learn more things, then I'm going to be a better disciple. And to a certain extent, that's kind of true. We do need to learn some things. But equally important to learning some things is we need to unlearn a whole lot of things. The path of discipleship is learning, unlearning, and then relearning all that Christ is trying to teach us. So we learn new things that we did not know. We unlearn things that we previously held to be true that are not true, and then we are in a cycle of relearning constantly. And if you are a faithful follower of Jesus over and over again in your life, you will find yourself learning, unlearning, and relearning. And we see that here in the text in verse 15. It comes in a little paradoxical way, so I want you to stick with me for a second. It said, people were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, this is weird, right? So imagine we're here in in, in Renaissance, and you see somebody coming to me with their kid, and um, the kid is cute and everything, and then you see all of our staff like, no, no, get that little nasty kid out of here. And not even because of coronavirus. You can't even blame it on that. But they're pushing them away. And what was going on that would make them feel this way? Well, it was the attitude of the Roman culture around them. Now, it's really hard for us to even get this because in Harlem, like, kids are just so precious and so blessed. I'll never forget what it felt like to walk with my newborn down the street. There could be a bunch of dudes on the block smoking weed, and they would see you coming down the the block with a stroller, and they would put the blunts behind their back and apologize. And like, yo, my bad, bro. Go ahead, get get, get past. There'll be people who would just walk past and put $20 bills in the stroller. And I would buy, like, stuff for me. And then random strangers would come up to us and just say, God bless that baby. They would like stop us and bless the baby. So it's really hard for us today in New York City 2021 to get the 
the chasm culturally that existed back then. Uh, what existed then was something called infanticide, which basically meant in full ways that if you did not want your kid, you can just discard them. And this is actually where orphanages came from. Christians uh, decided that they would take the kids, instead of letting them just die and being discarded or drowned in a river, they would take them and they would care for them. And this is where orphanages first came from. Now, in all of this horror, certainly Jesus' disciples were not advocating infanticide, but they were a part of a culture that devalued children. So what do we see here in this text? Although they would never do the unthinkable, like, you know, toss children out, their culture, their understanding of life and children was not shaped by Jesus, but it was rather shaped by the culture around them. Now, I think this is a very sober warning for us, which means this. You can spend two years with Jesus every single day and still be powerfully shaped by the culture. These disciples, they were with Jesus literally every single day. Now, for us, it's not infanticide, but it is something. It's a number of things, actually. Ways that we are powerfully shaped by culture and we don't know it. And Jesus invites us to a path not of just learning new things, but unlearning things that we previously held to be true in order to truly develop this faith that he is trying to unearth inside of us. Now, one of the things that I think we need to unlearn is what is faith? What is faith? Now, a lot of us confuse faith with hope or optimism. One of the best ways that I think that we understand faith, the way that we see faith is when people walk away from it. So as a pastor, I, I hear this all the time. I can be anywhere, and whenever I'm somewhere and someone hears that I'm a pastor, uh, I immediately get their faith story that they grew up in church or they weren't going to church or grandma made me go to church. And so many people walked away from what they call faith, and they say every version goes something like this. I grew up thinking X, Y, and Z would never happen. X, Y, Z happened, and I left the faith because God in the church is whack. That's not faith. That's optimism. That's, that's hope that in a specific outcome. Faith, biblical faith, has nothing to do with outcomes. Biblical faith has everything to do with an object. Real faith has to be placed in an object, not in an outcome. Think about it like this. You and your crew, you're fully vaxxed. Y'all got some plane tickets. Y'all about to hit these uh, domestic streets and uh, go to a new city and have a good time. And you're about to hop onto a plane. Now, you might be hopeful and optimistic that you land on time and you get there with a smooth, safe flight, but your hope and your optimism, while it's not unfounded, that is not faith. Your faith has to be anchored to something. Your faith has to be rooted in something, and you can't just put your faith in your hope and your optimism. What you are anchoring your faith to is the mechanical integrity of the airplane and the proficiency of the pilot. That is what is the object of your faith. I believe that this is a good, sound, safe plane and that the pilot knows how to operate it. This is why I will never fly Spirit Airlines. <laughs> or any, you can call me bougie or whatever, I'm not flying Spirit, Frontier, none of these $17 flights to Cancun, y'all can have it. True story, one of my friends told me that they took one of these budget airlines and he said, yo, J.O., in my seat, there was an ashtray, an ashtray. Do you know how long ago it was that you were able to light up a camel cigarette 
on an airplane, decades, and this is your fleet? I'm not trusting that. I do not trust the mechanical integrity of an airplane that was constructed in a time that lets you smoke cigarettes during a flight. I don't trust that. And I also don't trust the pilots at Spirit. Them dudes and ladies came straight out of pilot school into a 737, and I am not putting my faith in that. Y'all can have those cheap flights all you want. I will pay extra to fly something that makes me feel more secure. Now, your faith is not in an arrival time. Your faith, whenever you hop on a plane, click on your seatbelt, is in the mechanical integrity of that plane, that this plane will do exactly what it's supposed to do, and it's not being held up by duct tape. And it's also in the proficiency of the pilot. These are the objects of your faith. From the object, objects of your faith, you can derive hope and optimism. Now, here's what's very important. The object of your faith right now should never be in an outcome. It has to be in an object. It has to be in a person, namely Jesus Christ. And if, if you have your faith in Christ, if you have your faith in God, not in the outcomes that you have prescribed as the ways that you will judge God's faithfulness, then that will change the nature of your faith journey altogether. So when Jesus is talking about faith, he's not talking about him meeting all of the demands that you have put on him to qualify as a good and faithful savior. Here's the problem with that. All of your demands are insufficient and they would never prove it to you anyway. There's one author that says it like this, like, if God, if God gave you Jesus on the cross, and if that's not enough, is a new apartment going to prove that God loves you? Is a relationship going to be the thing that you say, oh, now I can finally rest securely that God loves me? Is more O's in the bank account with a number in front of it, is that going to be the thing that pushes you over the edge? That's just another criteria for God, your God that you've created to meet, another hurdle to jump over. God gave us Jesus, and if he has given us Christ, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Our hope, our faith that Jesus is drawing us to is not in the outcome. It is in an object, a person, Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing we need to unlearn, and we need to constantly challenge ourselves. What is my faith actually in? Am I hoping for a thing, or am I truly putting my faith in Jesus? So Jesus tells us, Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Trusting that God is for you despite what is going on around you. That God is with you and that God can do anything. And that's the goal. Now, as I was reading this this morning, I was thinking about, well, Lord, how do we actually develop this childlike faith in our life? I first think we need to understand what it is, and then we can put some things in, some practical things in, in place Essentially, Jesus is saying, you have to become like a little child. And little children, um, he's not saying be childish, he's saying be childlike. And children are known for their dependence and their boldness. So I think what Jesus is raising to the surface for us right now is that there needs to be a helplessness in our life that we feel and perceive that we bring nothing to the table for God. And that actually is the gospel message that Jesus has paid our debt and we are not relying on ourselves uh, to feel better about ourselves. And I think one of the good litmus tests for this is your prayer life. Uh, when you pray, do you spend time just rehearsing your sins over and over and over again, rehearsing your flaws and how far short you fall? Or do you spend time basking and savoring in what Christ has done for you and actually feel welcome to God's 
table. Children are certainly dependent, especially infants, like Jesus was talking about in this. All children have our desires. Small children, they don't have expectations. They don't have a 10-year plan. They have the desires that are in front of them in that moment, and they believe that their parents will meet those desires. Christ is first calling us into a real dependence that lives moment by moment in trusting in him. And the other thing is children expect to be accepted. There is a boldness that children have that they will walk into any conversation and mid-conversation to say, hey, look at this. And you're like, look at what? This. And you just kick their leg. And you're like, wait, wait. And then they will interrupt your conversation. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. And they have to be taught to not interrupt adults in having good conversations just to do some random thing with their leg. And they expect to be accepted. There is nothing in their brains that says, I'm going to be rejected right now for doing this. And I think the goal of the gospel is to bring us to such a certainty that we could interrupt the king of the universe and that he would actually look at you and pay attention to that. That is the fullness and the goodness of the gospel. So if you're too high of yourself and you think that you don't need God, or if you're too low of yourself and you think that you're not accepted, both of these things are actually pushing away a childlike faith. Now, I think the way that we actually embrace this and bring this into our life is something that you see one author in scripture named Paul talk about when he talks about the nature of humility. Now, in order for us to actually become more and more humble people, Paul says this in the book of Philippians uh, 2 and 5. He says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, I want you to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean to adopt the mindset or attitude of Christ into your life? Now, one of the things I love about Renaissance, and I love, uh, we have so many families and people who have really worked adoption into their family, and it's such a beautiful process to see uh, adoptive families built together and just how the Lord is doing so much beautiful and profound stuff in, in adoptions. And uh, when I was uh, practicing as an attorney, I did family law for about seven years, and adoptions were always the nicest and best part of my job. The judge was nice to you, everybody was in a good mood. Uh, but adoption is this, it's the process of choosing something and taking something or someone into your home and into your life that did not come naturally. Adoption is a process, it is not overnight, of taking in something externally and bringing it into your life that did not come naturally. Now, as nice as adoptions were in court, there would be one very sober moment where the judge would stop everything and stop the photos and say, listen, there will be times, like in any home, where things are extremely difficult. There will be moments, there might be moments where you might even wish that you can undo this, but you can't. Because adoption is all about commitment and it has nothing to do with feelings. To adopt something means you are committing to it and you are trusting that your feelings will catch up to the commitment. And this is something that I've seen over and over again, family after family. They bring in a child from the outside, and it is a process for that child who was, once was a stranger to become, and I've seen this a hundred times, what is now the centerpiece of the family, the family jewel, the one that they absolutely adore. But day one, they may or may not have felt that way about that child. Adoption is a process of taking something from the outside and committing to it and trusting that your feelings 
will catch up to it. When scripture writers tell you to adopt the mindset of Christ, he's not asking you how do you feel about it. I know you're big and bad and sophisticated and you've read books and magazine articles and you know a little something about a little something. But when scripture tells us and invites us humbly to adopt the mindset of Christ Jesus, it's saying we are invited on a journey to commit before we will discover certainty. And that is the Christian, the Christian life. Now, adoption is about commitment and it's not about feelings. And Paul is saying that this is essentially the nature of biblical humility. That This is how God grows humility in you, that he asks you to do things, commit to things, believe things that you don't feel just yet. Now, one of the things I think plagues our spiritual journeys is that we are, in general, myself included at too many times, we are feelings-led people instead of a biblically-led people. We are a feelings-led people instead of a Jesus-led people. That whatever I feel is the thing, that's what I'm going to do for the day. And that is the opposite of a childlike faith. That is never going to allow us to truly grow in humility. So to develop humility in our lives, we have to look at Jesus and adopt his mindset into our lives. And eventually, not immediately, we will find that that is now a part of us. It's something that now gives us life, even though before it felt foreign. Uh, one of the things that I think this looks like in practice is a scripture that nobody wants to do. I don't care if you're left-wing, right-wing, liberal, whatever, uh, northern, southern, Knicks fan, Nets fan. Nobody wants to put this into practice. And this is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and 44. He says this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You, think about the people that you hate, love them, and pray for the people that are persecuting you. Now, this is what it looks like to adopt Jesus' mindset uh, into your life. It's a practice of saying, this is not what I would do, and it doesn't feel natural, but by faith I will accept it and adopt it into my own life, and we truly can't have a faith and a relationship with God without approaching God in this way. Now, Jesus actually did this in practice where he was on his way to be crucified and he was being punched and beaten and laughed at and mocked. And Jesus looks at the people who are beating him and mocking him. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, when I read that scripture, I think to myself, if somebody was to do that to me, they're going to catch a two-piece with a biscuit because my hands are good. You ain't about to just ride up on me without finding something. And I think that what was motivating Jesus is what I hope motivates me and what I hope motivates you. And I think the thing that will actually allow us and create in us a more, humble, a more hum humility in our hearts is actually just doing what Jesus says to do. Uh, here's one concept that I've been thinking about. When Jesus said that prayer, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, he was not rehearsing what they did. He was thinking about what they need. One of my boys, James Roberson, he preached at Renaissance a couple of weeks ago from the Bridge Church. He says this, when someone has hurt you, think about what that person needs instead of what they have done. Then pray for their needs. If you do this, you will see the brokenness of people and it will make it possible for you to pray for them. When Jesus was walking to the cross, he wasn't rehearsing what they were doing to him. He was rehearsing what they needed and he prayed for that. Now, I don't know if you've ever had someone who was close to you who betrayed you in a, in a real way, uh, someone that you really trusted, and they took your trust, and they hurt you with it. They turned it against you, and it feels pretty terrible. Uh, they were talking about you, and 
a number of years ago, I had a, a friend that I trusted. He had some real deep insecurities, and he believed that the only way for his candle to shine was to blow everybody else's candle out. So he made it a practice of saying some pretty terrible things about me and my family, and uh, it was extremely painful and very frustrating and very enraging. So to hear Jesus' words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, I was like, mm, tried that one on, doesn't fit. I'm not going to go with that one. And then I thought about it. This is not something that I would ever naturally do. I will never naturally arrive at the conclusion that I want to pray for somebody who's done this to me. But to adopt Jesus' mindset means I'm going to take something in from the outside and I'm going to put it into practice. I'm going to commit to it and I'm going to trust that my feelings will catch up to it. And then I started to think about what are his needs. Man, in some conversations we've had over the years, what he truly needs is affirmation. Like what he really needs is to believe that he matters just because of what God says about him, that he matters and just his life, just existing, that he doesn't need to be the biggest, baddest dude on the block, that just him breathing in and out gives him value because he is a human being created in God's image. And I was like, Lord, this brother just needs affirmation. And I started to pray that he would experience and that the Lord would surround him with people who would speak into his life positive things so that he wouldn't, need the, he wouldn't feel the need to attack other people just so he would feel better about his life. Now, over time, I've had a number of experiences with people who have said different things and done different things. And taking this mindset of Jesus and putting it into practice, honestly, has changed my life. It has absolutely changed my life. Now, this does not make me somebody who doesn't want to see justice happen. Of course, I want to see that happen. But on a person-to-person -person level, I have become a person that has adopted Jesus' teachings into my life, humbly accepting it, and it changed everything about me. And that's just one area. There's probably a thousand different areas that we can talk about. Now, the first way that we truly develop humility in our lives is by adopting Jesus' mindset into ours and saying, God, you know better than I do. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it into practice in my life. I'm not going to be a feelings-led Christian. I'm going to be a Jesus-led Christian. And that's a big difference. Now, if we're going to develop a childlike faith, first we have to adopt this attitude of Christ. And the second thing that we need to do on a daily basis is we need to empty ourselves. Uh, there's so much of our lives that can't be full because we're full of ourselves. There's so, much area, so many areas of our life that God wants to reach that he can't reach in our lives because it's just too crowded with us. And God can't nurture a childlike faith in us because we just have, we're holding on to, to too much. Now, infants do not have expectations. They only have desires and cries. And a lot of times we lack real joy that God wants us to have and we're unsettled because we truly haven't emptied ourselves. We still have preset expectations on what God must do to be faithful in our lives. Now, the way that we empty ourselves is through prayer. When Jesus taught on prayer, he said, I want you to pray like this all the time. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Not my way of doing things, not my preferred order, your kingdom come. And he says to pray, your will be done. Now, to pray your will be done and your kingdom come, these are not prayers of receipt. I'm not asking for God to give anything. Instead, I'm actually turning my hands over and I'm letting go. I'm saying, God, I want to let go of the, the perceived way that I think this world should work, and I want to follow in your way. And it is in emptying ourselves that God is able to nurture a childlike faith in us. Uh, there's a story about how animal dealers sometimes catch monkeys in the wild. The animal trainers take a number of narrow-mouthed jars 
and place some really shiny beads inside of them. And then they put those jars firmly into the ground. The monkeys see the jars, see all the shiny beads, and then immediately stick their hands in the narrow mouths to grab a fistful of beads. But because their fist is wider than their hand was going in, uh, it's impossible for them to withdraw their hands again. Now, you would think that they would just drop the beads and go figure out another way to get them, but they don't. Uh, the monkeys cling to the beads until their captors come, place them in cages, and then they release them by breaking the bottles. Unfortunately, most of us are like these monkeys, sometimes in more ways than one. We become fascinated by some imagined prize. We refuse to let it go, even if it destroys us in the process. The goal of, in the process of nurturing a childlike faith in our lives is emptying ourselves. It's letting go. It's not claiming a control over your day, your life, how we will live and believe and behave, but simply trusting what God says about us and what our days and our lives, lives should look like. So God, I also think, wants to shape in us not just a humility and a dependence. I also think he wants to create in us a boldness. And the only way I know to develop boldness in my life is to hear God's words spoken over me. So I want to end today with some declarations from Scripture that I hope you take to heart. For your light and momentary afflictions, I know it's painful, it's producing for you an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but what is, on, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For struggling with your place in the kingdom, Jesus speaks to you and says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. For those of us concerned about where we might find ourselves in any day, know in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from this permanent, enduring, reckless love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for uh, the invitation that you have given us to embrace a childlike faith. Lord, help us to trust you that you are for us. Help us to trust you that you are with us. And help us to trust you that you can do anything. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.